Uh, morning, everyone. All right? Uh, so, uh, it's good to see you. Now, I don't know what you enjoy watching on the television, uh, but me and Danielle wife enjoy watching a good crime program, a good police program. Some nods, yeah. Some of you, I'm sure, are far more cultured than that. I'm sure you spend your evenings reading or writing poetry. Um, <clears throat> but... We like a good crime program, something with lots of twists and turns, something with a good mystery to solve. Now, in those kind of programs, often the first couple of episodes, first two, three episodes, everything sort of builds towards a pattern. You can kind of see where it's going. It looks very much like one person's committed the crime. The police are pretty happy. They found all the evidence. It's all pointing in one direction. But if you've watched those kind of programs, you'll be well aware that you're on episode three. There's no way it's that person. You know that come episode four, it's gonna there's going to be a twist. So you no idea who it is, but you know early on it's not going to be that person because otherwise the last, four, last three, four episodes of this program are just going to be the detectives slapping each other on the back, congratulating each other, visiting McDonald's, whatever detectives do in their time. Um, <clears throat> now... I think we've reached a fairly similar point in this book. Um, so far in Ezra, things are going pretty well for the Israelites. Um, remarkably, a foreign king has allowed them to return to their home. Um, he's helped them by returning all their treasure. Um, he's allowed them to rebuild their temple. Um, now, it's worth emphasizing and re-emphasizing, as we've covered over the last few weeks, that building their temple isn't just them building a nice building. It's building their um, place where they met with God. It's God's home on earth. So this was a big deal. A foreign king had let them come home, let them rebuild their temple. Um, it's all going pretty well. Now, if you're a reader of the Old Testament, just like if you're a watcher of detective programs, you know that if it's all going pretty well for three chapters, it's going to start going wrong. Um, and that's the point where we reach in chapter four. Um, we're going to start to see the first few bumps in the road. So far, it's been going pretty well, so you can pretty much guarantee that things are going to start to go a little bit wrong. So, uh, we're in Ezra chapter 4. Uh, it's quite long, but I think it's worth reading all of it. Um, so, um, if you hopefully come on the screen, if not, um, but I would, it's quite a complicated passage. There's quite a few jumps forward and flashes forward, and so if you've got it in front of you, I would keep it in front of you because it's uh, a good one to follow along with as well. So, Ezra chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the family and said, Let us help you build, because, like you, we seek your God, and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered you have no part with us in building a temple to our God we alone will build it for the Lord the God of Israel as King Cyrus head the king of Persia commanded us then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and, and make them afraid to go on building they hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the day of Arta 
Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bilsham, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in the Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Rahem, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahem, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges and officials, over the men from Triopolis, Persia, Eric, and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honorable Ashurbanal, a, <laughs> uh, <coughs> deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in the trans-Euphrates. This is a copy of the letter they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of trans-Euphrates, the king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and the walls are restored, no more taxes, tri taxes, tribute or duty will be paid and the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city troublesome to kings and provinces, a place of rebellion from, time, from ancient times. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. The king sent this reply to Rahem, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in the trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you have sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against the kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had, a has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute and duty were paid to them. Now, issue an order to these men to stop the work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to, not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rahem and Shimshai, the secretary, and their associates, they, immediately, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Well done for sticking with that. Um, <clears throat> so, um, if we go back to the first three verses um, of that chapter, we'll go, we'll go back to the start and we'll work our way through. When I first read these um, verses, they confused me a little bit when I first read them. We've already seen in the first few um, chapters of, the, of Ezra so far, the Israelites, the Israelites have actually benefited from help um, from an unlikely source in King Cyrus. And so in verses 1 and 2, when we see the Israelites being give, we see the Israelites being given what we think is a fairly similar offer. We see the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, who are people 
um, from the area that probably we're more familiar with calling Samaria, so we could probably call them the Samaritans, um, they offer to help build the temple. Because, and they say, we, like you, seek your God. On the face of it, this looks like another amazing um, and very unexpected offer. But it's an offer that we see the heads of the family of Israel rather bluntly turn down. It's not a polite, oh, thanks very much, but no thanks. Instead, they tell them, you have no part with us building a temple to our God. Now, when I, we first read that, when I first read that, it feels pretty rude. should be more welcoming and grateful for an offer of help like that. Just because they come from a different country with different culture doesn't mean they can't help. It seems to fly completely against our Western and Christian instincts of tolerance and welcoming and accepting people from all kinds of backgrounds. It looks at first sight to be, at best, a bit rude, uh, a bit ungrateful, and maybe at worst, racist, intolerant, xenophobic, and stubborn. But if we dig a little bit deeper in what's going on, we can see there's a bit more happening here. The Samaritans, uh, those enemies of um, Judah and Benjamin, say they've been worshipping Yahweh since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. Who brought us here? That's what they say. So we can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 17. In verse 33 of that, it tells us, they worship the Lord, the God, they worship the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. Yeah, they worshipped God. But only in a sort of pick and mix, covering your options kind of way, where they worship lots of their own false gods as well. That was the way that most cultures and most societies at that time did it. If we remember that this wasn't just a standard building project. This was building God's home on earth, the place where God's people could come into his presence. When we remember that, it becomes clear why they didn't want to allow the Samaritans to join in with this project. Their project was to build a temple for the only true God, not one God amongst many. It was their line in the sand. If you wanted to be part of building and strengthening the house of God, just worshipping God wasn't enough. You needed to worship God for who he was and who he is, the only true God. Not hedge your bets by worshipping him and lots of other gods. Yahweh had to come first, above everything else, not equal first amongst other priorities. This is something that we need to consider as we consider who we're going to build alongside. Now for us, living after the cross, we know that our building, when we're building the temple, we, we know that God lives in us. So we're building people, not a physical building. But we should have the same line in the sand when we think about who we're going to build alongside. I think it's important to say at this point that we're not talking about who we... We're, build, we're talking about who we build alongside, not who we let into our building. So we're not talking about um, who we might welcome into a, a Sunday morning or who we might welcome into our homes to have a look at what church is like. Jesus' example there is that we should be open to anyone and everyone. But 
there is a distinction between visiting a church, exploring it, getting to know his people, and being a part of it. And that distinction should be, and is, being willing to put him above everything else. Being willing to discard all other priorities for him. We have to build alongside people who are putting God first, with nothing else competing for equal footing. In our culture and our context, it's probably unlikely that we will encounter people who literally worship other gods um, alongside Jesus. But we do know that other things can become like those gods and start to take priority, start to take our attention away from God. Other things can easily become idols that fight for our attention alongside serving him. It could be money, it could be our jobs, it could be our family. It could be a particular interest that we have, a hobby or something that we're really passionate about. They really, those things can really fight for our attention. But if we want to be a church that properly serves God and serves the God who laid down everything for us, we must be a community that strives to put him first above everything else. Now, this isn't necessarily a formula for building your numbers really, really quickly. It's certainly much easier to say, oh, you're interested in Jesus a bit, come and join us, just as it would have been easier for the Israelites to build a temple with the Samaritans helping them. We might find along the way that some people decide that it's not for them, that putting Jesus above everything else, above what you want, above what you're interested in, above what you're passionate in, is just a bit too inconvenient or too difficult. This can be really painful. And we should do what we can do to stop people sliding out the back door of our church family. But it shouldn't be something that we're scared of either. Being part of something that maybe gets a bit smaller can feel a bit uncomfortable. But if it means that everyone is on the same track and everyone is pushing in the same direction, it can be more fruitful. Francis Chan says this in his book, Letters to the Church. Um, it's a really good book if you've not read it. Um, really easy to read. Um, he says this. He says, I'm going to say something that might be hard to hear. What if we let them leave? What if we followed God's design for the church and in doing so allowed the church to be pruned down to only those who wanted to obey? We might find that a pruned tree might, would bear more fruit we might discover that the branches that weren't bearing fruit were actually sucking all the life out of the tree. This is the approach the Israelites took. Their first priority wasn't building a big number of people, but making sure that everyone who was on board was putting God first, knowing that they were reliant not on having lots of people, but on having God with them. I think it's a good question to ask of ourselves as well to soberly reflect on ourselves. Are we putting God first in everything we do? Are we someone others would want to build alongside? So when I think about how I spend my money, how I spend my spare time, am I trying to put God first in that? Am I asking him? Am I listening out for those little nudges and knocks that point, point him where, I want, well, where he wants me to go? When I come here on a Sunday morning, or TDA on a Sunday morning, am I saying to him, what do you want to use me for today? Or what do you want to teach me today? Or am I thinking about what, what do I want to happen today? What about big decisions in life? 
what job we should get, where should we be living. Are we putting God first in that? In the next year and a half, we've got to make a decision about which secondary school we're going to send our son Reuben to, um, which is a scary thought. Um, <clears throat> but how far are we willing to let God guide us in those type of decisions? It's easy to look at the Samaritans with a sort of tut-tut attitude and think, well, we're better than them. But it's important for us to reflect on ourselves and ask how much we're putting God first. Now, we see as we read through, the Samaritan's reaction to being turned down quickly actually justifies the Israelites' decision because they show their true colours. And the rest of the chapter details the many, many steps that they take um, over a large number of years to oppose the rebuilding of the temple. So they start off saying, oh yeah, we're really for you. And then we see the rest of the chapter, oh, they're really not. Um, And I think as we read about the opposition that the Israelites encounter, as they try to work together to build the house of God, we'll be able to learn about the kind of opposition that we face. Um, This is an important thing for us to consider, an important thing for us to be aware of and not be naive to. But I want us to also consider how we can face up to this opposition, what the limitations of it are and what our strength is. So it's a bit like a sports team preparing for a match. They need to know, a good sports team will think about their opponents. They need to know what their strengths are. They need to know how they're going to attack them. But they also need to know what their own strengths are, how they're going to play. Not just how we're going to stop them scoring goals or points or runs or whatever sport you're watching, but how we're going to score our goals. Um, so as we look through the rest of the passage, we're going to look at both. We want to, I want us to look at the kind of opposition we're going to face, um, but also how we're going to face up to it. How do we ensure that we um, end up on the winning team? Now, the structure of the rest of the chapter is a bit confusing. Rather than telling one particular story of one particular time and particular type of opposition the Israelites faced, it's actually a sort of flash-forward to lots of different opposition that they faced over a number of years. These verses cover the reigns of six different kings, so they might come up on the board in a second, um, over a period of about 130 years. We started the chapter in the reign of Cyrus the Great, who was the king between 559 BC and 530 BC, but by the end of the chapter, we're in the reign of Artaxerxes, who was the king around 100 years later, between 465 BC and 424 BC. And there's four other kings in between. And as we see, we see different forms of opposition in different periods of time being summarized um, through the rest of the chapter. So in verse five, it describes how officials were bribed to work against them through the reigns of the first four kings, um, we can see on the screen. And that happens over a period of 73 years. Then in verse six, Um, It describes an accusation being lodged against the Israelites during the reign of Xerxes, the fifth king up on that screen. Uh, Then verses 7 to 23 are set in the reign of the last king on the Artaxerxes. So I wanted to look at three main patterns that I can see in the opposition to the Israelites and the way that took shape. And so I want to think about what that opposition might be um, and how we can combat against it. So the first thing I noticed um, from these verses is just how long-term the devil's plan is, how long-term this opposition is. We can see it covers all these raids of all these different kings. 
these verses don't just cover a short, sharp blast of opposition, but a long-term, gradual attack that covers nearly 150 years. I think it's important for us to be aware of the fact that the devil doesn't just deal with short-term temptation. Sometimes we can think of temptation as being like a bit like an advert for ice cream. Um, it's short, sharp blasts of temptation um, for things that might give us a short, sharp blast of pleasure, but we know really don't last. But often the devil is more subtle than this, and the opposition we face is more long-term than this. Um, C.S. Lewis's The Screw Tape Letters um, is a brilliant picture of what this can look like. If you've not read it, I would really, really recommend it. I tend to read most books once, but this is a book that I read. I've only read once so far, but when I finished reading it, I was like, I'm going to read this again and again and again. I'm going to keep coming back to it because it's a brilliant picture of what the opposition that we face might look like. It imagines, if you've not read it, it imagines letters of advice that a devil called Screw Tape. Uh, might give to a trainee devil, which is his nephew, Wormwood. And it gives advice on how to knock Christians off course. And one such piece of advice is this. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, screw tape. It's this slow and steady opposition that we can see happening to the Israelites across these verses. Um, and it's this kind of slow and steady opposition that we need to be aware of in our own lives. What are the first steps that the devil is trying to take in trying to knock us off course? One point elsewhere in the book, Screwtape suggests to Wormwood that he could start to disrupt a marriage. And how does he do that? He just does, he just, gets them to, he just gets him to notice, gets someone in that marriage to notice something their spouse does that's annoying. I think, I can't remember, but I think it's like the way they sneeze or something. Just a little thing that just annoys them. It doesn't seem like much, it doesn't feel like much, but it's just one little weakness to build the next little weakness on, to build the next little weakness on, to build the next little weakness on. Um, and the next frustration. We need to be wary of these first steps ourselves. What is the first or the second step the enemy is trying to take to knock us off course? Maybe it's just something that you notice about a spouse or a member of your family or about your church that annoys you. Or maybe it's some, someone in church that annoys you. But what's going to be the next step that's built on that frustration? What's going to be the next step that's built on that frustration? Um, maybe those first steps actually happened quite a long time ago. Maybe those first steps were built several years ago. And if, as you reflect, you can see other bricks being built on top of them. It's really, really important that we aren't naive to the subtle and gentle ways that we might be knocked off course Slightly off course, a little bit at a time. Or even the subtle and gentle ways the enemy maybe knocked us off course several years ago. Now, being in a long-term battle against a powerful enemy sounds exhausting and far too much for us to handle. But when it feels like this, we need to remember the song the priest sang in the last chapter, in chapter 3 as they laid the foundations and what it tells us about the God who is on our side. So in chapter three, 
the priest sang, he is good, his love towards Israel endures forever. Our God is stronger than any opposition that we might come across and his love doesn't just last a long time. The devil's opposition lasts a long time. God's love doesn't just last a long time. God's love lasts forever. Uh, Philippians chapter one, verse six says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We also know that Jesus himself experienced temptation and he will help us. It says that in Hebrews two, um, it says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That Jesus was willing to experience what we experience with temptation, in fact, far more than we experience with temptation. And the fact that he promises to be on our side, side cheering us throughout the whole journey, should give us confidence and courage to face up to this opposition. So, that's the first thing, the long-termness of it. The second thing that I noticed about this opposition um, is it's the kings that they try and influence and they try and target. What they're trying to do here is shift popular opinion against the Israelites. The kings would have had an unrivaled ability to set what is right and wrong in their culture, what was popular and unpopular. So what they're trying to do is influence the kings to be against the Israelites. So in turn, popular opinion is shifted against the Israelites. Culture thinks the Israelites are wrong. We can see this shifting of popular opinion against the church happening in our society now. It doesn't necessarily happen through the king. I don't think Charles sets what's cool and what's um, popular. Um, but we can see the shifting of popular opinion against the church happening to us today. It feels uncomfortable. We want the church to be seen as welcoming, loving, grace-filled, but other people want to paint the church as being backwards, bigoted, judgmental, and an intolerant place. We want to be liked, and obviously wanting to be well thought of isn't a bad thing, and so feeling public opinion shifting against us is not really a nice place to be in. And so it can be easy to want to start to make compromises, to prioritize being liked by people um, over sticking to what we feel the Bible teaches us. In these times, we need to remember that our identity doesn't come from what other people think about us, how much they like us, um, but our identity comes from what God thinks of us. Summarized well in what God thinks of us, summarized well in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's where our identity comes from. It's not comes, it doesn't come from people thinking we're great. It comes from Jesus was willing to die for us. Jesus' experience on earth wasn't part of being in the in crowd. He, that wasn't what he experienced. Uh, many, many people loved him, but even more people hated him. Isaiah 53 says, he was despised and rejected by men. When we realize that Jesus was willing to sacrifice being well thought of for us, then whether we fit in with the current whims of our society and what that society says is good and true at that moment should become less important to us. Third thing I noticed about this opposition um, is that it's very accusatory. The letter that is written to Artaxerxes is full of allegations about what the kind of people the Israelites are, 
what they've done in the past, and what the future will look like if they're allowed to build the temple. Three important things, I think, actually. What kind of people they are, what they've done in the past, and what the future will look like. Most of, those state, most of the things that they say are very general statements. There's no real specific context being given, and there's very little supporting evidence to back them up. And they're certainly, at best, very, very hypocritical. But they're probably not entirely untrue. They've not been made up from nowhere. They've not just imagined them. You could definitely find examples through history, through the history of Israel, of them being troublesome to kings and provinces. That's one thing they're accused of. Certainly, the Exodus story would have been a little troublesome to the Pharaoh in Egypt. And we are likely to face similar levels of accusation ourselves. We have an enemy who wants to fill our brains with doubts and worries about who we are, what we've done in the past, and what might happen in the future. We constantly have to battle with thoughts like, you're not good enough, you're not as good as that person, you did this, so what kind of person does that make you? If this happens, it'll be a disaster. You won't be able to cope. These doubts don't come from nowhere, but are often based on half-truths, out of context, without specific information or context, but half-truths. The closer they are to what we worry about might be the truth, the more more effective they are at opposing us. But half a truth is not the truth. It's a lie. And so we need to turn to the God of truth to help us overcome this opposition. Actually, the cross means that fears and doubts about who we are, what we've done in the past, and what might happen in the future are completely irrelevant. When we say yes to Jesus, we're accepting full on that on our own, we're not good enough. We're nowhere near good enough. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that that's not what we're judged on. That's not what Jesus looks at or God looks at. Our slate has been wiped clean. When the devil says, you've done this or that, we can say, my past has been covered for. Look at him instead. And when he tries to make us worry about our future, we can say that my future is with him forever. Now, sometimes if I pop into the supermarket for a few little bits and then use the self-checkout, I have a nagging thought in my head as I walk out of that shop, worrying that the security guard might stop and accuse me of shoplifting. Does anybody else ever have that worry? Um, How will I prove my innocence if if they're convinced that I haven't paid for what I've got in my hands? That all changes if I click yes when they ask me if I want a receipt. If I've got the receipt, I can walk out with confidence. Um, So I walk out, usually with lots of things balanced in my hands because I haven't bothered to get a bag. I don't want to pay for them. I don't want to pay them 25p for a bag. So I walk out, lots of things, stagger through the shops, sort of some bananas coming out of my teeth. Um, But with my receipt in my hand, dangled, just not waving it in the security guard's face quite, but just subtly making sure that he can see that I am not a shoplifter and I have paid for what I've got in my hands. It's my sign that the price has been paid. 
If they accuse me of anything, I can show them that the price has been paid. The gospel is our receipt. It proves that everything has been paid for. When we face accusations, we can have it ready to counter them. So when we're told we're not good enough, we can get out our receipt and say, yes, but he is. And the Bible tells me I can do all things, not by myself, through him who gives me strength. When he says, yeah, but you've done this and you've done that in the past, we can wave our receipt in his face and say that Colossians 2 tells us God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood before against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And when we're made to doubt about our future, we can wave our receipt and say, in 1 Peter, it tells us that we have an inheritance that will never perish, never spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for us who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. So, we can face up to that opposition. But, as we finish this chapter, it still feels like we're heading towards a bit of a bad ending. We've got a temple that's um, at a standstill. We've got a whole race of people in the Samaritans who look like they're excluded. So, without spoiling the next two preaches um, too much, I want to take a fast forward to see the ending. At the moment, it looks like we've got a bit of a rubbish ending. Whole race of people excluded, no temple happening. Um, and so I want to take a quick fast forward through the Bible, not into Ezra 5 and 6, but a bit later than that, in John chapter 4. Um, and I want us to see what happens to this group of people called the Samaritans, and what happens uh, to this temple. And then we're going to finish. So John chapter 4, it tells the story of Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman at a well. So one of these people's descendants. In this story, we see the Samaritan woman turn from expecting Jesus to not even speak to her, to treat her like the Israelites treated her, um, to being saved. She accepts Jesus' living water. Then she runs off to her village, where later in the chapter we find that many, many other of her um, people, many, many other Samaritans are saved. And in, they say in verse 42, we know that this man really is the saviour in the world, uh, saviour of the world. Jesus makes it clear that the gospel here, he makes it clear that the gospel is open to all who are willing to turn to him, accept him who, for who he is and to put him first. On the cross, he dealt with everything that had happened in the past. And now he says, whoever, whoever, including the Samaritans, drinks this water, I will give him, will never thirst again. So, that's the Samaritans. They were once disqualified. At the start of this chapter, we think they've been written off, but now they're counted in. But what are the temple? Where can we go to meet with this God if the temple is at a standstill? Well, in, chapter, in verse 21 of this chapter, John chapter 4, it, he tells the Samaritan woman, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the God, the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What he did on the cross means that we no longer have to go to a temple, um, built or unbuilt, um, to meet with God. His presence isn't restricted. 
He is here with us wherever we go. 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells us that if we've accepted Jesus, then we are the temple, that his presence is here in the Flatton Center, at TDA, in our house, in our life groups, wherever. We are the temple. And it's, acceptable, it's accessible to anyone who wants to accept it. So, as I finish, I think we're going to sing a few more songs together. So, band, if you want to start moving your way back. Um, I think it would be good just to uh, respond to this glorious, glorious truth, the fact that God's presence is here, that it's available to anyone, that we do face opposition, but we're given more than enough to help us face opposition. Um, I think it would be good just to celebrate that, to celebrate, enjoy his presence with us, enjoy the fact that we can come to him, enjoy the fact that we can face up to anything with him um, together. We'll take communion in a few minutes. Um, I'll let Paul decide how we do that. Um, But yeah, let's, let's stand and celebrate the God who helps us face up to our opposition.